0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 91, as Pastor Adam just mentioned here. Psalm 91 says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Father, we come before you this morning as broken vessels, as people who are burdened with the weight of this world, with the fears and the concerns and the challenges and the problems of this life. But God, help us to see in your word this morning, in this text, that you are a God who saves and you are a God who delivers. And there is a very particular way that you do that. Help us to see that this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 2020 was one whale of a year, was it not? COVID-19 completely turned our world upside down never before has the world in unison come to a screeching halt in the way it has over these last 12 months the coronavirus changed the way we live it changed the way we relate it changed the way we work the way we play the way we eat even the way we breathe you know the mask right so but in all the turmoil and upheaval one thing has not changed and that is us. We have not changed. The coronavirus hasn't changed any of us in one sense. It's only shown us really our true colors. We are a world driven by fear. We are driven by fear. Some of you, and in one sense, we could say all of you are afraid to die The very thought of disease, uh, maybe a a particular disease like the coronavirus that you cannot control, it paralyzes you. You're scared about getting exposed, getting sick or losing your life. You fear even the same thing for those you love and COVID-19 has preyed on your fears. But some of you, a lot of you are afraid to live. You're afraid to live. What do I mean by that? You're not scared of the pandemic. You probably don't even think in one sense there's a real pandemic. What drives you up the wall though is government overreach through the pandemic. You're scared about where this nation, this world is heading. There's too much big government encroaching upon your freedoms. You're not afraid to die from COVID, you're afraid to live in a world that is run by a leftist agenda. And so COVID-19 has also preyed on your fears. Now listen to me, both of these fears are valid. Neither one of them are irrational, but both of these fears are still fears. We are a world driven by fear. We are a church driven by fear. And the title of this morning's message is The Only Hope for 2021. Because as we look back on what happened in 2020 and we start slugging our way through this terrifying, brave new world, so to speak, in 2021, we have to address the elephant in the room. And that elephant is not Covid 19 and that elephant is not radical government policies that elephant is your fear it is your response to what is happening in this world you are afraid and understandably so these times are disheartening they are challenging but you need some hope you need some hope in psalm 91 is the perfect Psalm to give you the hope that you need in 2021. But it's not the perfect Psalm for reasons you might think. Uh, You've probably seen or heard someone this past year quote from Psalm 91 with reference to COVID-19. Do you remember hearing one of these verses sometime these last 12 months? For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence or how about these you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday a thousand may fall at your side ten thousand at your right hand but it will not come near you or maybe you've heard these because you have made the lord your Uh, The Lord, your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. These are all verses that are found in Psalm 91. And as a result, really, Psalm 91 has become the flagship Psalm of COVID-19 for many Christians this year, because it kind of sounds like God is promising to protect his people from getting sick during a pandemic, right? Right? That's kind of what it sounds like I mean if we're being honest we're looking at the text we're being literal grammatical historical you know theologians of the text we're saying that's what it sounds like but that's not what makes Psalm 91 the perfect Psalm for 2021 for starters it's just really bad theology to believe that God promises to give Christians immunity from covid 19 that's just not true that's a form of Prosperity, gospel, heresy that stands in contradiction to everything else we know in scripture. God never promises you immunity from disease if you just have enough faith, or maybe you give enough money, or maybe you help enough people, or whatever the case. On the contrary, God often takes his children through the pain and uncertainty of disease to increase their faith no psalm 91 must be promising something else there's something else must be going on here and there is there is rather psalm 91 is the perfect psalm for 2021 because it offers you something better than immunity from covid 19. it offers you something better than a one-way ticket out of liberal california okay and you're like what's better what's better it offers you something that will solve every fear and every concern that you have ever had. Now don't tell me that you don't want a little slice of that pie, right? Psalm 91 is exactly what you need right now. It's exactly what you need. But to see how this Psalm is better, how it solves all of our fears, we need to kind of figure out what's, going, what's even going on in this Psalm in the first place, right? And like I just mentioned, many believers assume this Psalm is promising Christians immunity from pandemics. But here's the thing, that's not even close to what it's talking about. If, if, if that's what we're thinking, we're way off the mark here. So we've got our work cut out for us this morning. And so before we even get into this Psalm, I feel like I need to sort of deconstruct what you may already inadvertently think this Psalms about. And then I need to reconstruct it Uh, for you according to what the text actually says. And to do this, we're gonna open by uh, answering two important questions, two important questions. Number one, the first question is this, what is this Psalm talking about? What is this Psalm talking about? What on earth is even going on in this Psalm? At times, it sounds like there's this random pandemic, like. COVID-19, and it's sweeping through some random land. Or maybe at other times it looks like there's this army that is is attacking this random village. But that's not exactly what's going on here. Psalm 91 is not talking about things randomly or generally. It actually has something very intentional and very specific in mind. And to figure out what it has in mind, you have to do your homework and cross-reference all these verses with other parts of scripture to find out actually what this psalm is referring to. And here's the thing, when you actually do that, here's what you find. Nearly every verse of Psalm 91 is, has some kind of a direct connection back with Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 33. Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 33. Thank you. And you're like, what's Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33? What's, what's, that? what's going on there? Well, almost all of Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33 has to do with Israel's curses for disobedience. What is said in those six chapters represent the harsh fate that Israel will face if they disobey God. And our psalmist has imported many of those curses into Psalm 91. Now, let me show you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Put your finger in Psalm 91, because we're going to go back and forth between Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 33 a little bit here, okay? So, I'm sorry if I get your head spinning in your Bible a little bit this morning, but that's what we're gonna do for, a few, for, for just a few minutes. Finger in Psalm 91, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're gonna look at verse 21. Deuteronomy 28, verse 21. It says, the Lord will make the pestilence, pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So take note of that word, pestilence, okay? Pestilence, in case you don't know, is basically like a deadly pandemic, all right? Now turn back to Psalm 91, look at verse three. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the what? The deadly pestilence. So there's that word again, pestilence. This is one of Israel's curses for disobedience. And it shows up again here in Psalm 91. But whereas Deuteronomy said that Israel will suffer this pestilence, what does Psalm 91 say? It promises that someone will be rescued from it. Okay, here's another one. Finger in Psalm 91, turn over to Deuteronomy 28, verse 66. Verse 66. Your life shall hang in doubt before you, night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. Notice the three words there, night, day, and dread, okay? Flip back to Psalm 91, look at verse five. You will not fear the terror, or another word is dread. It's the same thing, same word. You will not fear the dread of the night, nor the arrow that flies by? Day, feeling dread both day and night is one of Israel's curses promised in Deuteronomy. And Psalm 91 picks up the exact same language there. But again, whereas Deuteronomy promised that Israel will feel that dread night and day, Psalm 91 promises that someone will not feel it. Here's one more, finger in Psalm 91, turn back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 23. Deuteronomy 32, Verse 23. It says, and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Notice the words there, arrows, pestilence, beasts, and venom of things that crawl in the dust. Now, jump back to Psalm 91 again. You getting tired yet? I'm sorry. Verse five, Psalm 91, five, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the, what? Arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wasted noonday. So there we see arrows, and pestilence. Now hop down to verse 13. You will not, sorry, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And so there we have a lion, which is a kind of beast, and a snake, which is something that is venomous that crawls in the dust, right? So once again, we see curses plugged into Psalm 91. But whereas Deuteronomy promised that Israel will fall prey to the arrows and the pestilence, to beasts and to snakes, Psalm 91 promises that someone will overcome them. Now those are just three examples. This is really just the tip of the iceberg that I've shown you. I could keep going here and we would be here all morning, all afternoon and probably all night. Every verse of this Psalm is calling back to the curses that God promised Israel would face for disobedience to Him. In Psalm 91, if you really wanna think about it this way, is acting like an inspired commentary on Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 33. So, in answer to our first question, what is this Psalm talking about? It's talking about the curse. It's talking about the curse, the curse referring to everything in this in one sense that we suffer in this world as a result of sin and disobedience to God. That's its overarching agenda to tackle. What about the curse? How are we gonna deal with this curse? All the problems that we face, all the suffering that we endure, COVID-19, problems with authority and government and all the different mini challenges that you face on a day-to-day basis, it is all wrapped up in this idea of the curse. But notice the pattern. In Deuteronomy, God promises that Israel will suffer those curses, but in Psalm 91, God promises that someone will not. It's like a theological game of duck, duck, goose. Remember that game, duck, duck, goose, when you were a kid? You know, duck, 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 goose, right? That's how the kids always do, right? They're like running crazy around the, around the circle. Well, that's kind of the way it is here, except this time it's cursed, 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 not cursed. That's how it is. Someone has broken the pattern. A thousand may be falling at his side, 10,000 at his right hand, but not him. There is one exception to the rule. There is one person who is miraculously immune to every curse. Somehow, some way, this individual has found the way to break Israel's curse for himself. Whoever this person is, he has the antidote. He has the magic formula. He has figured out how to stop Israel's curse dead in its tracks. And so that leads us really to our second important question. Who is this Psalm talking about? Who is this guy, right? We're all dying to know who this person is. Who is this mystery man, so to speak? And the Psalm is just begging you to ask this question, okay? It's wanting you to ask this question. And now at first, it probably seems like the person in the Psalm is, is, talking, is really about you or you, and it's talking about me, right? It appears like the psalmist is talking to whomever, whomever is reading the psalm. It says in verse three, he will deliver you from the trap of the fowler. Verse four, he will cover you with his feathers. The psalmist is talking about us, right? Wrong. It's not talking about us. A very simple way to prove this is to look at this psalm in the original Hebrew language. Because it is there that you will see that this you is not plural like it normally would be if it were talking about us. It's singular, it's singular. That's significant. If he was going to talk to you and me, he would make it plural. That's how the Psalms usually talk about you and me. But here it is singular. This is talking about someone else. So who is it? The answer here is a game changer and it puts this psalm on a whole nother level. Drop down to verse 11 of Psalm 91. There are some clues in the second half of the psalm here that give us a pretty good idea of who this person might be. It says in verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now these verses should sound familiar to you, right? That's because they are quoted by Satan when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Now we won't turn there, but you can see this part of the story play out in Matthew chapter 4, verses five through seven, and also Luke chapter 4, verses nine through 12. If you remember the story, Satan escorts Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he orders him to throw himself down to the earth and says that the angels will catch him when he falls. And then he quotes these two verses from Psalm 91 as proof that this is exactly what will happen. But notice, who did Satan assume these two verses were talking about? Jesus, right? Jesus. So is that it? Is this our guy? Is this the is, is this the one person who Psalm 91 is talking about? Could be. But what's the problem? Our one and only witness is. Satan, the father of lies. What do you do with that? This is the one guy you don't want, you you don't want interpreting a psalm for you, right? (laughs) Did Satan get the identity of this mystery man right? As crazy as it sounds, in this case, I think he did. I think he did, and here's why. Look at verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Here's another verse that should sound familiar to you. Where else in scripture have you heard someone treading on a serpent? Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is the Bible's first prophecy about who? The Messiah. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. He, the Messiah, will crush the serpent's head. That's what's going on in Genesis 3.15. And that's what I would argue is going on in Psalm 91. Satan got it right. He interpreted the psalm correctly. He just applied the psalm incorrectly. Incorrectly. And so, in answer to our second question, who is this Psalm talking about? It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. If you still think we need more proof, if you're like, that's not enough evidence for me, You can look at verses 14 through 16, because in those verses, nearly every single word is drawing from either Psalm 20, Psalm 21, or Psalm 22, which are all messianic psalms, psalms that are directly about Jesus. There's almost an airtight case you can make that this psalm is directly about Christ. Psalm 91 is talking about Jesus. He is our mystery man. He is the one who found a way to break the cycle of the curse. And that shouldn't surprise us one bit. I mean, who else would you expect could escape all the curses for disobedience? Who else would you expect to be able to stand strong when a thousand are falling at his side, 10,000 at his right hand? Who else could trample underfoot the strongest beasts and the most cunning of serpents? Us? You've got to be joking, right? No way! Of course this Psalm is about Jesus. Of course it is. The only one who could obey God perfectly and therefore avoid every single curse. He's the man of the hour. He's the hero of this Psalm. And that changes everything. That changes everything. How can we reconcile the fact that God doesn't always rescue his own from disease and death, and yet at the same time it says here in Psalm 91 that he will deliver you from every curse this world can throw at you. How do you reconcile that? Christ, Christ. If this Psalm is talking about Jesus, we understand that he is ultimately the one who has won the day by defeating the curse through his death and resurrection. And if Christ beat the curse, guess what? You will too. You will too. That's Psalm 91. Jesus is your only hope for 2021. Now that was my introduction. But don't worry, that was by design. We had to tackle this Psalm a little bit differently than we normally would and spend a little bit more time on the introduction because there was a lot to unlearn and then a lot to relearn about this Psalm. But now that we have our bearings, I think we can finally dive into Psalm 91 and we'll move through it rather quickly. But I think it'll make a little bit more sense now, okay? The main idea of Psalm 91 is very, very simple and clear. The Messiah will overcome the curse for us, the Messiah will overcome the curse for us. And that means everything to us. It means everything because that's essentially God's guarantee that he will put an end to this old creation, 2020 and 2021 included. And then he will usher in a brand new creation. And the opening two verses of this Psalm are sort of kind of a, they're like an introduction so to speak. And this is what they say. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now at this moment, the psalmist hasn't started talking about Jesus yet. Instead, he first starts talking about himself. And we don't know who this psalmist is. The psalm doesn't come right out and say, doesn't give us a title or superscription or anything like that. Some have suggested that David maybe wrote it, could be. Others have suggested Moses. Uh, I tend to lean that direction, but regardless who the psalmist is, we know that he doesn't keep talking about himself through the rest of the psalm. We can easily see that there's a transition. He stops talking about himself and starts talking about someone else, starting in verse three. Pay attention uh, to the pronouns here. He switches from first person in verses one and two to second person in verse three, or verses three and following, and that's important. So verse two says, I will say to the Lord, my, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, that's the psalmist talking. But then verse three says, for he, meaning God, will deliver you from the trap of the fowler. That's someone else, that's someone else. The psalmist calls himself I, me and my, but we know that he switches to someone else by calling him you and your, you see that there? The psalmist is speaking directly to the Messiah. All the way, this happens all the way through verse 13, and then once we get to verse 14, it switches up a little bit, and I'll show you that in a bit. That's significant. The psalmist is saying, I can completely trust in God for my own personal welfare because of how God treats you, the Messiah. Now, if that is, if that you is you and me, That makes absolutely no sense. How does God's protection of you and me give the psalmist the utmost confidence that God will protect him? I mean, who are we to shoulder that kind of hope? The psalmist's fate doesn't rest on our shoulders. But if the psalmist is talking about the Messiah, that's a different story. Now it makes sense. The psalmist has so much hope you have so much hope, all because God takes care of who? The Messiah, and if he takes care of the Messiah, we know he will take care of us because we belong to him. And so most of the rest of the Psalm here is talking, is, the, is really the Psalm is talking about the Messiah to the Messiah, and he explains why we can have so much hope because of the Messiah. So in verses three through 16, we're gonna see here three reasons the psalmist had hope in his time. And so really there are three reasons for hope in 2021. Three reasons for hope in 2021. And we'll move through these rather quickly uh, to really to close out our time. Reason number one, the Messiah's protection from the curse. The Messiah's protection from the curse. That's what we see in verses three through eight. The whole point of this first section is that no matter how you look at it, no matter how you analyze it, the Messiah will be protected. He will be protected. If you look at it from God's perspective in verses three and four, the Messiah is covered. It says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. What are these verses saying? God is not too weak. He is strong enough to protect his Messiah. But what about the curse? Maybe the curse is too strong. Well, verses five through eight tell us, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Is the curse too strong? No, it doesn't have any effect on the Messiah. Even though the curse would throw the kitchen sink at the Messiah, the Messiah says, it doesn't affect me one bit. The curse is... God is, not, er, God is not too weak. The curse is not too strong. So no matter how you slice it, the Messiah will be protected. And that's exactly what you and I need to hear. Since our fate is tied to the Messiah's, if he succumbs to the curse, we succumb to the curse too. But if he overcomes the curse, we will overcome the curse as well. Our destiny is tied to his. It kind of reminds me of the story of how our national anthem came into existence, the Star Spangled Banner. Francis Scott Key was inspired to write the national anthem after he saw bombshell after bombshell fly into an American fort along the coast of Maryland during the war of 1812. And as smoke filled the sky, it was unclear whether the fort had survived or not. And Francis Scott Key was certain the fort was lost. It was done for. But at dawn, the smoke began to clear and Key saw one lonely American flag standing in the breeze, just waving in the morning light. And that flag, it took the British's best shot. But because it did and it survived, it became the guarantee that not only had the fort itself survived, but all of America as well. And that's what inspired Key to write those famous words of our national anthem. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Is God strong enough to protect his Messiah? Is the curse too powerful for the Messiah? God is strong enough. And the curse has no effect whatsoever on the Messiah when the threat of disease panics you, when the prospect of death grips you with fear, you need to remember that God is not too weak and that the forces of this world are not too strong. Yes, you will get sick. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will eventually die. But that is not the end of the story. It's not. The Messiah has overcome the curse, and all of of its effects, everything that you face in this world, the Messiah has overcome. And the Messiah's protection from the curse is your only hope. But it doesn't mean much if the Messiah takes the curse's best shot, and then does nothing about it, and does nothing in return. If you don't fight back, if you don't go on the offensive, the curse is going to run the rest of us over who can't put up a fight, right? So the Messiah must retaliate, and he does in verses nine through 13. And that leads us to our second reason for hope, which is the Messiah's domination over the curse. The Messiah's domination over the curse. Look at verses nine and 10. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Notice, the curse at this point now is nowhere to be found. It's gone. The implication here is that the Messiah has defeated it. It's over. But we need proof. Is that really what happened? We don't just want an implication, we want full evidence here. Did Jesus actually beat the curse? Well, we find out in verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Why is the curse nowhere to be found? It's because God has equipped the Messiah with every divine resource to guard him on the way. The curse is scared. it's, it's hiding in caves and holes in the ground while the, while the Messiah is marching through the wilderness, surrounded by angels, marching on his way to victory. That's kind of the idea. If you cross-reference these verses with Exodus 23, verse 20, you'll see that verses 11 and 12 are really kind of like a picture of Jesus retracing Israel's steps through the wilderness, replacing every defeat with every victory of his all the way from Sinai to Canaan. And that's the destination of the march here. That's the destination of the march. And we find out specifically what the Messiah is after in verse 13, what is he marching to? Verse 13 says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. He will end his march with the trampling of the arch enemy of the curse. He will crush his head and do away with the greatest threat known to man. In other words, Jesus is making his way in one sense back to the Garden of Eden to take back his people and to win back this world. That's what's going on here. Listen, when the government restricts your freedoms, when it robs you of your inalienable rights, when it walls up your churches and shuts its doors, you need to remember that Jesus will one day crush its master's head. You must remember that. The forces of darkness cannot stop what is about to happen. It may look like the church is losing, it may look like the world is ending, but brothers and sisters, our Messiah is winning. He is winning. He will win the day because the curse has been beaten. And you need to remember that. When you are gripped with the greatest fear, this is what you need to remember. Your hope is not in this life. It is in Christ and is in Christ alone and being with him forever. The Messiah's domination over the the curse is your only hope. So the curse is defeated and Satan is vanquished, but is that really the end? Did that really do away with every problem, every hardship, every difficulty in this world? What if the curse comes back? What if if another serpent arises? Is there any chance the victory is only temporary, that it was only short-lived? Well, in verses 14 through 16, God himself steps up to the microphone and leaves us no doubt. And this is our third and final reason for hope, the Messiah's exaltation to end the curse for good. The Messiah's exaltation to end the curse for good. And In verse 14, we hear what God himself has to say about his son. So now we switch over. This is no longer the psalmist talking directly to the Messiah. This is God himself talking about his son He says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God says, yes, I will protect him. Yes, I will rescue him. But then what does it say? I will then honor him. And so the conclusion of the Messiah's victory over the curse is his exaltation. But that exaltation does more than just elevate Jesus. It also signals the end of the curse for good. That's what it does. Because this is what we see here in verse 16. Look at this. These are the words we've been waiting to hear. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. How do we know the curse is dead? How do we know it will never come back to life? Because God will give Jesus, as it says here, long life, long life. That phrase long life is very significant. It's a phrase that is often applied to the Messiah throughout the scripture to mean eternal life, to mean eternal life. You can cross reference Psalm 21 verse four or Isaiah 53 verse 10, but it also, often suggests this, a resurrection, a resurrection. If the Messiah needs to be given eternal life, then this implies in one sense that he has lost his life. He has lost his life. This isn't just the hope of some vague eternal existence. This is the hope of a real bodily resurrection. And that right there is all the proof that you need that the curse is gone for good. Here's why. Death is the curse's most lethal weapon. Everyone in the world succumbs to it. And so you know the final nail will be driven into the curse's coffin when the Messiah rises from the dead. That's how you know the curse is defeated. Because Jesus' resurrection spells the end of death itself, the curse has breathed its last. It's on life support and God will pull the plug when he sends his son back to reclaim the earth. Imagine that Placerita, imagine that. No more death, no more pain, no more suffering because the curse has been defeated, not just for some time, not just for most time, for all time and beyond time, forever. The curse will be gone. It will never come back because Christ rose from the dead, that's your hope. Because you and I are in Christ, having been buried with him in his death, and having been raised with him in in new life, in his resurrection, then this Psalm applies to us too. It applies to us too. Yes, one day we too will be delivered from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. Yes, one day too, we will not fear the terror or the arrows, the pestilence or the pandemics. Yes, one day we too will not experience the evil that will befall us. No plague will come near our tents. Yes, one day God will perpetually protect us. God will deliver us. God will even glorify us alongside his son. And yes, one day we too will be giving length of days, eternal life and experience the full weight of an eternal glorious salvation but I'm not talking about today that's not today if your hope is in this world and that God is somehow going to protect you from all the trouble and all the difficulties of this life you are misunderstanding this psalm and you are misunderstanding what Jesus and his hope is all about today is suffering today is hardship What we're talking about in this Psalm, the hope that you have is Jesus's return. That's what we're looking forward to. When he comes back, that's when the curse will officially be pronounced dead. Time of death, Jesus's return. And when that happens, you will undergo the hope of a resurrection unto eternal life. And so the Messiah's exaltation to end the curse for good That too is your only hope. But that hope wasn't free. That hope came at a high cost. If you look back at verse 15, you'll notice something very strange in this Psalm. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. This is really the only time in the Psalm where the Messiah appears to be in any sort of danger you kind of get some hints of it earlier, but it's, this is the clearest and most obvious moment. The whole time it looks like that Jesus is fully protected. He's completely dominated. He's highly exalted, but not here. Here, there's a brief moment of distress. There's a short hour of misery. There's a small window of pain. You see, the only way The curse could be broken for you and for me as if someone else was broken for us. To kill the curse, Jesus had to become the curse. That's what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree all this hope that we love and we long for. It came at such a high cost, right? Either Jesus becomes the curse for you or you will suffer for all eternity. A version of the curse far beyond what 2020 or 2021 could ever throw at you. The world thinks this is the worst. This is not the worst. This is the best for them right now. We need to make sure the world knows there is something far worse coming unless they repent. And then, yes, this is the worst. And this is as worse as it's gonna get. Have you trusted in Christ alone to save you from this eternal curse? Have you repented of your sins so that you may obtain his forgiveness? Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait until it's too late. This is the hour to turn to Christ and to find the hope of his salvation. At the close of the service, we will have people down here in front here who can talk more with you about the gospel and can share with you the good news of Christ or if you have any concerns or fears or things that maybe I've kind of brought up in your own heart that you wanna share and have someone pray with you about, there's gonna be people up here in front who can do that with you. So if that's you, I wanna encourage you to take advantage of that this morning. Listen, we are a world who's driven by fear. We are a church who's driven by fear. Now the world has every right to fear, like I just talked about. It has no hope that the curse will ever end for them. But brothers and sisters, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Why does fear consume you? Why does it control you? Could it be that your eyes are too fixed on the here and now? Could it be that your heart is too attached to worldly pursuits? Could it be that your mind is too preoccupied with temporary concerns? It's time for you to prepare your minds for action. It's time for you to be sober-minded. It's time for you to hope completely on the grace that is being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Messiah has overcome the curse for you so that you don't have to fear the curse of this world any longer. As one of the Verses of a well-known hymn that we sing says, I'll set my gaze on God alone and trust in Him completely. With every day, pour out my soul and He will prove His mercy. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too brief to measure, my King has crushed the curse of death and I am His forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us not just the hope of escaping the turmoil of this world, but you have given all of that in your son. You have given us your son himself. It is in him, Father, that we find our hope. It is in him that we have our treasure this world and all of its concerns, it will all pass away one day if our trust is in you. So God help us, help us to have eyes of faith, to have ears of understanding, to look to Christ and to trust him even when the the things of life become so difficult and it's hard to put one foot in front of the other and we're too scared, we're too paralyzed with fear to even try to move forward. Father, may your spirit mobilize us and move in us to do what you have called us to do, even if the prospect of death is on our doorstep. May that be what drives us, because, oh God, your glory is sure. Your hope is sure. Your salvation is sure because it it is bound up in the person of your son and you will never go against your own son who died for us. You would never do that. You will protect your son to the very end. And so in him, we will stay protected. So for the glory and honor of your name, Father, help us this week, this month, this year to take advantage of the hope that we have in Christ through his death and his resurrection. Is all these we pray all these things in Christ's name our Savior. Amen.